Take your Bible and turn to Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 through 16. This is God's Word written, His infinite wisdom written with you in mind. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace, and to them he said, you go into the vineyard too. Whatever's right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour, in the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? And they said to him, because no one's hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first last. Let's pray. Lord, would you send your Spirit to use this, the reading of your word, and even now the preaching of your word. Use it to open our minds and our hearts that we would see Jesus in whose name we pray. Amen. I like uh, considering kind of the world in which we live. I love to think about kind of how life operates in the time in which we have the privilege of existing. It's one of those kind of weird daydream things I enjoy. I I have a 25-minute drive to church every morning, and I use my car ride beautifully. My mind is about a million miles away. Uh, One of the things that I enjoy thinking about, though, were kind of some of maybe perhaps the unintended consequences of life in a postmodern age in the U.S. Like, what are the elements of our lives that we tend to not even realize are an element of our life 
Again, like a, a fish I mentioned earlier, doesn't even really know how to describe water because we live, you know, fish lives in it so much. What are the elements of our lives that we have a difficult time even kind of wrapping our minds around that it hasn't always been this way? One of the ones that I, I love to kind of think about in a, in a big picture thing uh, is the reality of choice. You know, as a consumer, and all of us are consumers in some form or fashion, uh, the younger you are in the room, the more that you are likely to presume the reality of choice. Right? The older you are in the room, you remember that when it came time to go buy a, uh, a car, you had a couple to choose from, or a pair of pants, you had three to choose from, or a pair of shoes, you had two to choose from, and that was just the reality of choice. You choose, you chose what you like, you liked what you chose, and that was kind of it. But increasingly, as the younger ones are born and grow up, and now I'm finding myself not in that younger camp anymore, we have people that have never lived without Amazon. Ah! <laughs> and again, for those of you that are older in the room, please, please understand that it, it changes your brain to grow up in a world where at any given moment you can go on one website and find a billion different products. In fact, actually, you can find about 78 million different versions of the same product that you want, which knockoff brand you want of your name brand thing. And one of the things that we don't realize is, again, this changes how our brains operate. Uh, and one of the things that I, I think that I, I think about a lot and I enjoy thinking about is how we're spoiled for choice is the term, but the byproduct of choice is discontent. And interestingly, as we watch the younger generations grow up, we're watching the richest generation in human history quickly become the least content generation in human history, I think. And for those of you that are older in the room, I know that it's easy for you to kind of just get frustrated and grumpy with the younger ones, like, oh, when I was a child, how dare they, you know. Please understand, the young ones in the room that are grumpy, they don't know any different. They don't, they don't know any different. Their brain has never created pathways to make a decision between three things and then that be a good thing. Their world has only been filled with choice. So while it's easy to get aggravated with them because that's how they work, but you know what? They don't know a different world. They don't, they don't understand it. I remember talking with a father in the church a number of, of years ago, and he was uh, at the time currently aggravated with one of his children because the child had opened up the laptop and began mashing on the screen as hard as they possibly could because they had never used a screen that wasn't a touch screen. And so just about broke dad's laptop because that's the only world they knew. Again, it's not that they're wicked. They just don't know. The interesting thing, though, is that it's creating, I think, and, and further cementing in this American mindset a frame of mind of discontent. So much so that uh, I think, though we might not verbalize it, uh, Matthew chapter 20, really, it, it's kind of explaining how our hearts work. This is one of those passages that when we read it, we like to think about those other bad people that this describes, but in reality, it's kind of uncomfortably close, if we're going to be honest. 
Jesus here has just finished a description of the the interaction with the rich young ruler. I'm sorry, Matthew has recorded Jesus' uh, interaction with the rich young ruler. And the rich young ruler has come in and said, hey, look, uh, you know, I'm the bee's knees. I've lived a perfect life. I've kept the law. And Jesus says, well, good, good on you. Give away everything. Go give it to the poor and follow me. And the guy can't. Jesus wisely in his infinite wisdom puts him kind of in this decision point. Which are you going to choose? Are you going to choose the pleasures of this life or are you going to choose Christ? Which one of those? And, and the man knows, he, well, he can't give up the pleasures of the world. And Jesus, in wrapping up that intera- interchange, that interaction, uh, encourages disciples when they say, well, how, how can anybody be saved? It's like, well, anything's possible with God. But the, the closing verses are so significant as he, he lays out for them to say anything, anything that is given up for Christ Jesus will be repaid a hundredfold in the life to come. You give up the love of a mother, it's repaid a hundredfold in the life to come. You give up your way in interacting with a spouse, it's repaid a hundredfold in the life to come. You give up riches or notoriety, you give up fame or your name, you give up anything, it's repaid a hundredfold in the life to come for those that are in Christ's family. And he ends it with verse 30, an unbelievably simple verse that is extremely complex theologically. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. What on earth does that mean? Well, I think what's happening here is the Lord is setting out for his people the idea that his, his understanding of economics works a little differently than ours does. You know, his value system doesn't line up with ours. We have, a, many of us, a fairly clear value system of what's important to us. We, we want to have love or people that love us. We want to have stability in our lives. We want to have enough wealth that we can live comfortably. We want to have, you know, whatever pleasures we put in the list. And Jesus is saying, hey, look, God's economy doesn't match yours. Yours is a reflection of your humanity, some of which is good, some of which is uh, by your corrupted nature, but it doesn't match what God's economy is. His value set is far bigger and far better, and so here in chapter 20, we get a commentary on that verse. The first part of chapter 20, these verse 16 verses are an explanation, a a commentary, an illustration of what it means that the first will be last and the last will be first. And Jesus begins by telling them a parable. And again, remembering to teach you how to read parables. Uh, parables include as little detail as possible. And the only details that tend to matter are the ones that uh, advance the plot of the parable. Uh, it's not an allegory. An allegory, every little detail matters. A parable is not an allegory. It, it's designed, it's an illustration designed. You carry as little detail and as, uh, as few details as meaningful as possible to get our understanding. We're going to look kind of the, the foundation here. I think Jesus is giving one overarching point. That's what we're going to look at, one kind of big picture point, uh, then with a, a very specific set of applications for us today. The overarching point of the parable of the laborers in the vineyard, as the ESV labels it, uh, is a, a description of who God is. He's laying out for his people here this understanding of verse 30 of the previous chapter, many are first will be last and last will be first. That could easily kind of upset some of us. 
Because realistically, if we're going to be truthful, guess which category we are? Every single person in this room is not in the last category. Right? We're in the first category. We live in the best nation in human history. We're the best law set in human history. I'm not saying it's not flawed, but it's the best ever. We have the highest wealth ever. I mean, think about just modern medicine. You can get anesthesia anytime you have a procedure done. I can look at you and see that you're the beautiful, the lovely, the excellent, very intelligent. I know you're, many of you are pleasant to talk to. Thank you for getting the joke. I was waiting to see who would chuckle. We're not the last. We're the first in this room. We are the blessed amongst all that are blessed. And it would be very easy for us to kind of get a little twitchy about a verse like this. It could be very uncomfortable for us to think about going from kind of being the leaders in everything to kind of having to be at the back. In fact, actually, in Americans, and we tend to not do that very well, do we? We're not very good followers. We don't tend to do last very well. In fact, actually, you look at kind of world sports and the areas where we tend to do very poorly and get last, they tend to disappear from television fairly quickly, don't they? You find a sport that we're good at, man, it'll be everywhere. Even if people don't care about that sport, we'll be there. People care about a sport, but, you know, we don't do well, it won't be on television. doesn't matter. We don't do last very well. And so interestingly, as Jesus goes to kind of give us a a mental framework to process this statement, he gives a parable that's overarching principle, overarching idea is this. The foundation of understanding God's every interaction with God and his people is love. And I'll say that again, the foundation of understanding every interaction between God and his people is love. There is, put differently, there is no interaction that God has ever or will ever have with his people that is not love. Think, wow, that's a lot to get out of a parable. It is. No, it's, it's there. Jesus tells the story, and it's an easy one, an obvious one. It's a, a very common occurrence in parts of the world that are more agrarian, and you have day laborers. They would go uh, to the market or wherever. They would line up, and they would wait, and you would have people stop by and hire the day laborers, and that's what happens here. The master of a house goes out early in the morning, and he has a large vineyard that needs to be tended for, and so he goes to the marketplace where you would hire the day laborers, and he hires them for a day's wage. That's what a denarius was. It's a faithful, accurate, respectable wage. This is what a worker was supposed to get paid. He's a fair master. He's hiring labor, contracting for a very reasonable amount. He's not trying to shortchange them. He's not trying to get a deal. He offers to them exactly what they're supposed to be paid. The interesting thing is not at this point yet. It begins in the next phase. Verse 3, he goes out again in the third hour. So they have a 12-hour workday. So this is three hours into the workday. Those 12 hours shifted based upon the time of year and the sun and such. But three hours into the workday, he goes back to the marketplace. And interestingly here, now it's not a matter of needing help in the vineyard. It's not actually based on him. It's based specifically on those that he sees. Gets to the marketplace and sees what? Men standing around idle. 
People that want to work, people that want a wage, people that need money. And he sees folks standing around and he's like, why aren't you working? Come on, let's go. Go to the vineyard. I'll, I'll pay you what's fair. And that's interesting. That's his statement. I'll pay you what's fair. Well, technically, it's I'll give whatever's right. I'll give you whatever's right. And so in the third hour, they go and work. He shows up again three hours later at this point, halfway through the workday, does the exact same thing, finds workers there waiting in line, haven't been able to be hired. Great, go to the vineyard work. Shows up three quarters of the way through the workday. Hey, guess what? You need work, go through. And then the most just shocking thing, the 11th hour, an hour before the, the entire shift is up, he goes back into the marketplace and finds people there. Verse 6 explains the interchange he has with them. Why do you stand here idle all day? His concern, again, shockingly, is not about his vineyard. I mean, I'm just going to go and tell you right now, hiring a worker with an hour's worth of work, you don't even learn the systems in the first hour. Right? It takes an hour to get directions to do what you got to do, and then an hour to clean up whatever you just did. There's no way these guys are going to be able to get anything done. But interestingly, what happens? Verse 7, their answer is, look, we want to work, but no one's here to hire us. And so he hires them. You go to the vineyard too. Which again, it probably had to have been more of a hassle than anything else. It's not like he's going to get a great amount of labor done from them. What are they going to do? Show up, make a mess, and then leave it? Show up and clean up everybody else's mess? He's already got all the workers that he could possibly find. But it's interesting that Jesus is laying out for us here kind of this idea that when God is interacting with his people, it's motivated out of love. That's the point he's saying here, and you don't, again, get hung up on every little detail, but the, uh, the master of the house, he's not looking to his own needs, not looking to his own desires. Weirdly enough, he's not even looking to his own vineyard. His interchange here is an interchange that is driven by care for the worker. That would have been shocking in the time in which this is written. In fact, actually, anybody listening to this would have been like, what is this guy doing? I mean, he's, how foolish. Why would you do this? You're just making more work for yourself. But yet, he's hiring the workers for their good, not his. And then it comes time for the payout, right? And this is the kind of climax to the story where he calls his foreman and he says, pay him, pay him what you deserve and start with those hired last and work your way backwards. So the guys show up who've been there for an hour. And by the way, for those that don't know, there actually was a coin that was roughly one-twelfth of a denarius. He could have easily found some of those and been like, there you go, there's an hour's worth of wages, right? Here's a fiver, go have a good day. Thanks for playing. And he could have done that. Very much could have done that, but interestingly, at the obedience to the master of the house, he pays them a day's wages for one hour's work. Immediately, most of us are like, man, I want that job, right? I want the kind of job I can show up and do an hour's worth of work, and whew, it was awesome. And it works backwards with everybody being paid exactly the same amount, a denarius to each of them, one step each kind of going through each category all with the same amount. 
And it's intriguing how, we're going to talk about the grumbly part in a minute, but what he's doing is he's paying everyone at minimum what is fair. See, that's actually the other part to think about, and you can see our American minds at work. Most of us are immediately like, well, somebody got ripped off. You're not wrong, actually. Somebody did get ripped off. The master of the house got ripped off. The master of the house got ripped off because he paid guys that got a quarter of the day off, half the day off, a quarter of the day off, or 11 twelfths of the day off. He paid everybody the wrong amount except for the first group because he paid them way too much. Way too much. Like, insanely so. I mean, can you imagine that? It'd be like you going into your job on Monday or Tuesday, whatever it is, and your, your boss is like, you know, I think you had a good day today. Like a really good day. Here's $800,000. You earned it. Can I have good days like this more often? Not sure what I did, but I like it. Right? I mean, there, there's a point in which the only person that's really getting anything done wrong to them in this story, well, nobody is. It's just the master of the house being overly generous with everyone that he's interacting with. No one gets taken advantage of except for he himself freely does that. In fact, actually, we could go so far as to say he's overly generous in his dealings with everyone. It is extremely important that we catch this is the main point of the parable that Jesus is telling. That God is overly generous with all of his children, and the reason for that is because every single interchange that he has with them is motivated out of love. There is no interchange that he ever has with his people that is not motivated out of love. It's all throughout the scriptures. I I love how John does this in 1 John and and later. He he makes the point that, look, when God interacts with you, it's not even just that he's being loving towards you. It's that God is love. He is love. It's not like love is some sort of kind of thing that is defined separately and God acts that way all of the time. Any definition of love that we have is derivative from his character. It's taken from him. It's, it's secondary from him. He is the definition of love. And it's intriguing to think about that every time he interacts with you in every circumstance, if you are his child, he is interacting with you in love. And sometimes that's easy for us to believe when we have a really good day and the boss is like, here's $800,000 for a good day's work. We get it, right? As we talked about in Sunday school, some days a little bit less hard for us to understand that. When trials come, when we don't get our way, or actually in a situation like this where we watch somebody make out a whole lot better than we do. This is where Jesus kind of changes gears a little bit in the parable and he, he begins to apply it to the disciples and, and thereby apply it to us. And this is the lesson for us here. Again, the foundation, this is key. The foundation for every interchange between God and his people is love. God is love. He can be nothing else to you but love. He cannot be anything but love to his people. The result is, and this is the application that we're going to go with here, is that comparative theology, that's a term I'm using here. I'm going to explain that in a minute. 
Comparative theology is the enemy of joy. Comparative theology is the enemy of joy. So what happens is, as they begin to pay out, the guys who've only worked an hour show up and the, uh, the foreman gives them a denarius, gives them a day's wages. And the text even says, as Jesus explains it, now everyone who else, verse 10, those who are hired first are standing there and they're getting excited, right? Because they're going, look, if that guy worked an hour and got paid a day's wages, I'm about to make two weeks worth of work in one day. That is not a bad deal, right? Two weeks for one day's... I am all in on that. And you have to wonder, like, at what point they really kind of started to see the writing on the wall and begin to get upset. The guys who only work three hours show up. They get paid a day's wage. The guys who work six hours got paid a day's wage. The guys who work nine hours got paid a day's wage. And then the 12. And then you're like, well, we, we actually put in a full day's work. We got paid a full day's wage. But the guys who put in an hour, well, they got paid the full day's wage too. Verse 11 explains it to us, kind of their responses upon receiving their day's wage, they begin to grumble at the master of the house. They get discontented. They get cantankerous. Well, it's just not fair. It's just not right. It's, It's just not, it's just not, it's just not. And you see, what they're doing is, is comparative theology. Is they're looking at everyone else and they're comparing themselves and letting that work backwards into their relationship in this story with the master. But for us, it would be it reads backwards onto our relationship with God. We compare laterally, we compare horizontally one to another, us to each other, to the world, to those around us, to other people, to other humans, to others we see or their Instagram lives or their Facebook lives, and then read that relationship onto our God. There's specifically two kind of comparisons that I think are being made here uh, and specifically important for us as we think about our lives and how we are creatures of comparison in an evil way. One is that we're creatures of comparison regarding other people's performance before God. Now, this this works one of two ways. There's one primary way and one secondary way. The primary way that we compare others and their performance before God against ourselves is usually where we find things that we're good at and things that they're bad at. And we say, look how stupid they are. Right? That's the word we use. We may not say that one, but it's in our minds. Because, I mean, we're too sanctified to say, look how evil they are. But that's what we're meaning. Right? Look how bad they are. Look, they fail this aspect of God's law. They don't do this. They're the bad people. They're the wrong people. They're the ugh people, and I'm the good one. It gives me opportunity to be encouraged about myself, to to already affirm my fragile ego, to make my personal value try to inflate and increase because I can look at any of those other people and see the things that they fail at. There are some people in the room that already feel guilty because you know it do it. Good, you should. There are some people in the room that are still in denial. I can't, I can't make you see this in your own life. I can say this, though. Look at the people that aggravate you the most. Look at the people that you despise the most. 
Look at the people that you're angry at the most. And see if when you're despising them, when you're being angry at them, when you are judging them, if it is not this exact mechanic happening in your heart, that you're looking at them and saying, this person is last, stupid, wrong, evil, foolish, bad, outcast, rejected, awful, what other terrible word you're going to use, because they don't do this that I happen to be really good at. That just happened. It's because I'm a good person and they're not. You see, this is actually one of the great kind of thermometers of our soul is that where we run into those negative emotions, where we run into the anger, where we run into the frustration, where we run into the kind of moment where we think, that's showing us where we're doing this. I would argue the primary way in which we, we kind of practice this kind of comparative theology is looking negatively on others. There's a secondary one for some of us in the room that are wired a little differently than most. And all you do is you look at others to see how well they're doing so that you can practice intense self-loathing. This is the great gift of Instagram, for the record. Uh, It gives you an opportunity to see what you think their life actually looks like, and it doesn't look that way, for the record. It's all fake. That's what pictures are good at. It gives you an opportunity to see how good of a mom they are, see how good of a wife they are, see how good of a human they are, and to practice intense self-loathing. Well, I'm not good at this. I'm the bad one. I'm the stupid one. I'm the fool. I'm the outcast. I'm the reject. I'm the creature of shame because I don't. And they do. But you realize all of this is just, it's a performance-based comparison. It's a comparison of look at what they do and look at what I do. It's an attempt to compare apples to apples about what, what we made. Our good works, how hard we worked, how, how excellent our performance is. And I use the term comparative theology because this comparison that we have between people doesn't stay between people, but it begins to affect our relationship with God Almighty. Because when we look at others and we're saying, look how bad they are, look how bad they are, we immediately go, well, look how good I am and oh, I deserve God's blessing because I'm one of the good ones. I'm one of the good ones. They're the bad ones. I'm one of the good ones. I deserve it. Or, you know what, I don't deserve it because they're the good ones and I'm not the good ones. I, I'm the shame, I'm the self-loathing, I'm the hate myself and I don't deserve it and they do. You could see how the workers would have complained about this, right? Look, that guy did one hour's worth of work, I did 12 hours worth of work. He didn't even get here in time to clean up. I put in all the hard work, that's just not fair. The second kind of comparison that we make is is not just a comparison of the performance, a comparison of the work, but it's actually a comparison of the reward. 
right? You can see how they, they got paid too much. They got paid the same amount I did. I put in 12 times as much. They got overpaid. It's not fair. This is the one that I, I love because if, honestly, if we were in this story, how many of us would have been excited for the people that got overpaid? None of us. Let's be candid. None of us. Nobody in here would have been like, you know what? We all need to go work for that guy again. 12 hours, doesn't matter. Nine hours, doesn't matter. Let's go work by All of us would have been like, how can I be the 11-hour guy next time? Right? Let's be candid. That's who we are because we are all about that kind of thriftiness, that bang for buck of how do we do the least amount to get the most. And we would have been comparing what we think we should have gotten to what we actually did get. And it's just not fair. And this is, again, where we then kind of morph that first judgmental spirit on our neighbors. We then morph this onto looking at God's blessings. It's not fair that they have that. Do you know how they live? They're losers. How do they have so much money? How do they have so much happiness? How does their Instagram look the way that it does? It's just not fair. And friends, you can see how so easily that sets us up to poison our relationship with God. Because again, what did I say? What was Jesus' main point for this parable? Every interchange that God has with his people is an interchange of love, every single one of them. And interestingly, what's at the heart of all of these complaints? It's just not fair. I'm not getting love the way I deserve. Do you understand how that would poison any thoughts of Christ in your mind? Because at the heart of that that comparative theology is a comparison in which we find ourselves better and therefore find ourselves lacking because our God is not good. Our God is not loving. Our God is not kind. And friends, that is a false gospel. And we're we're Christians here. This is a Christian church. The heart of the message of the Christian church is the gospel, the good news. What we are clinging to with comparative theology, what we are clinging to with this it's not fair mentality, what we are clinging to with I deserve more, I deserve better, is at its core a false gospel. Because at its core, it's a terrible evil called legalism. I don't, I don't often make book recommendations, but this next point's taken straight up, ripped off from it, so I'm going to at least give credit from where I'm ripping it off. Sinclair Ferguson, The Whole Christ, probably one of the best three or four books written in the last decade. Ferguson makes the point in here that legalism is not uh, what we tend to think of it as defining it so small as kind of loving the law. Legalism is at its core separating how we think about God's rules from how we think about God's character. I'm going to say that again. How we think about God's law, his rules, his commands, 
It's separating them from thinking about his character. And what this does is it produces two different types of the same false gospel. This is what I'm going to call them. What it produces first and foremost in many of us is what's called, I'm going to call transactional Christianity. It's where every interaction with God becomes a transaction. I am good. I have done good things. Therefore, God should give me good things. Now, none of us say it that crassly. We'll say things like, well, I've had a good week. The Lord should probably answer this prayer. Or, you know what, maybe the converse. I shouldn't have this prayer answered because I didn't live a good life this week. You know, I've been having a tough time spiritually. I don't know why God would help me. Or, you know what, yeah, I'm growing. I'm, I'm, I've been in the Bible. I read my Bible every day this week. I should have a good weekend. I read my Bible every day this week. And friends, that's transactional Christianity. That is not a God who loves you. That is a God who is transacting business with you. And what you are doing at the end of the day is you're basing God's relationship with you on your own actions. Why should God answer my prayers? Because I'm a good person. Why should God take care of me? Because I read my Bible this week. Why should God not do these things? Because I didn't this week. Because the thing that's driving the entire ship is me. I'm the boss, right? It's not God loving me. It's not God taking care of me. It's me. Transactional Christianity kills love for God because all it does is it turns it into a commercial interchange. I do good things and God gives me good things in exchange. That's one half of the coin. Now the other side of this happens oftentimes very quickly and it's embittered Christianity. God's law is a killjoy. He would tell me to live that way? How, how How dare he? Does he have the right to tell me that? I just don't like what God says. I don't really care. I don't like what he says. I mean, I know I'm a Christian. I have to live that way, but I don't like it. And what happens here, again, is we we spend our time being angry at God and being bitter at God because of what he tells us to do in the book. I don't want to tithe. I want to spend all my money on me. I don't want to give a tenth to the church. I don't want to have to forgive. Forgive is awful. I don't want to forgive. I'm going to be angry privately instead. And what happens is, is we separate God's law from God's love, and then we begin to think that he's some sort of kind of malicious or capricious genie. And those are the stories that I, I absolutely kind of really struggled with as a child of just how uh, horribly unfair those characters were. You know, the, uh, the little adventurer, the hero, finds the, the lamp, he rubs the lamp, the genie pops out, he gets his wish, he makes his wish, and the genie finds the most horrible way for him to get whatever he gets, Right? I'd like to have all of the gold. In South Carolina, it falls from the sky and smushes him. Story ends. Well, it wasn't very kind. I mean, he got what he wished for, but that's awful. The one I always tell, but always makes me laugh, is I want a million bucks. And a million deer show up and ruin everything, right? Well, I mean, that's what he asked for. He's not wrong, right? Unfortunately, that's a lot of times that's how we think about God, though, is that when we think about his law and his commands, we think of him as some sort of kind of capricious, villainous genie that when we ask for things, he just gives us horrible things in exchange. In fact, actually, his commands are proof of it. 
tithing? Oh, horrible. Forgiving? Oh, horrible. And, and we just get angry at him. And you realize, Christians, for instance, this is producing the type of Christianity that we ourselves have, have, have displayed time after time after time, day after day and week after week, a Christianity that is either absolutely preoccupied with self or constantly aggravated because I don't think I'm getting what I deserve because God is the cosmic killjoy. And interestingly, where did Jesus start? Every interaction between God and his people is an interaction of love. His Ten Commandments are a love letter to the church. His command to forgive is a love letter to the church. Every inconvenient command that I don't personally like is a love letter to the church, and I'm the one that's wrong, not him. Because you see, at the core of what Jesus is setting up is a completely different way of thinking about a relationship with God. In the story, the workers are interacting with the master of the house based upon their works, how much time they spent, how much reward they get. And that's actually no different than we are most of the time when we interact with God, where we think about what good things we've done or what bad things we've done. We, we again, it it's comes down so much to our works. But interestingly, Jesus is setting up for the actual real gospel, the real good news, which is this. Your works have zero impact on God's love for you. Zero. You could be the worst human in human existence and it would have zero impact on God's love for you. Now, he's going to discipline you. He's going to take care of you. He's going to sanctify you. He loves you so much. He's not going to let you live that way forever. But it's zero impact on his love for you. And how do we know this? Because first off, we know when did he start loving his people? Before the foundation of the world is when he started loving us. In fact, actually, he started loving his people when we only existed in his own mind. He hadn't made us yet. He knew who we were. He knew how we would be made. And he knew, doesn't matter, any good thing in us. He knew us personally, and he placed his affection upon us for who we are, not for what we do, out of his good pleasure. Your works have zero impact on God's love for you. Now, the reality of the matter is, honestly, some of us are very grumpy Christians. Some of us are very angry Christians. And the reason why we're grumpy and we're angry is because we have not fully understood that our actions do not impact God's love for us. Jesus is setting them up for again for the good news of the gospel that in just a few short chapters, he's going to go to the cross. And when he goes to the cross, he's going to take all of their sins upon himself and he's going to give them all of his righteousness and he's going to give it to them freely. Freely. So that no good deed can merit it. No good deed could make it more theirs. It's given freely to his people. Because God is 
love to his children. And if you don't believe that, well, he gave you Christ and he gave you his spirit. Two persons of the Trinity belong to you. That's pretty good proof of God's love. I'll end with this. Some of us need to do some repenting. Because some of us, the best part is I actually don't know who. Some of us, this sermon has kind of put you in the, the, the sights of the laser sights of the sniper rifle, and God has been calling you out. And if you feel like you've been convicted, good, you should be. I, I don't know who you are. I wasn't thinking about you when I wrote the sermon. I don't know who that is. God does. That's why he wrote his Bible that way. But you need to repent. But the good news is, your repentance can't even increase his love for you because your actions cannot impact God's love. Because every interchange between God and his people is an interchange of love. Secondly, there are some of us in the room that perhaps have gotten a little bit filled with ourselves. Maybe we've gotten a little high on the hog and there's a little bit of deserving to our thinking. And again, we are those that need to repent and to say, you know what? Everything that I have, even the difficulties that are currently making me so angry I can't see straight, those are interchanges of God's love for me. And maybe... Maybe my anger is not a good thing. Maybe my it's not fair is not a good thing. Maybe, actually, I need to spend a little bit of time thinking about how much the Lord loves me and tell him I'm sorry. And third category, those that's in the room that already understand this, praise God, go think about it more. If God's love has been dominating your life already and you're acknowledging that, look, I, 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 can't, I can't impact that. He's so generous to me. Go contemplate that even more so that your love for Christ will grow. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you love us and that you love us with an un, well, as a dying love. Christ died for it, but an unchanging, undying love in that regard. And thank you that though we have fallen short of deserving it, literally every single time, your love has never changed. Forgive us for our sins. Forgive us for how poor our, forg- our repentance is. Change us even for your name's sake. Amen.